Um, hey, turn in your Bible to Luke 14. That's the text that's going to help us see Jesus better today. And we have um, been going through the different angles of hospitality. What hospitality looks like from the lens of hope or from the posture of community, the different things. We're going to do that again today, but I want to look at hospitality through the glasses of a missionary, right? What it, what it looks like to be a missionary. Now listen, some of this can be rough and uncomfortable teaching today. I'm just going to tell you right up front. In fact, if you have questions, please make use of the number, okay? You might. I might get some pushback, and I'm totally fine with that. Um, because whenever we talk about being a missionary, there's nothing that really guts you and shows you who you really are and the trouble that, that the things that you really hold on to, quite like teachings on what it means to be on God's mission. There's something about that that just empties us, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, we, uh, we understand as a church that we are all missionaries. We might not be great ones. But we are all missionaries, and all it means to be a missionary is to be in in a culture where you are very intentional about the gospel, whether it's how you show it to community, whether it's how you serve um, the city, whether it's how you speak, but we are very gospel intentional, and that's what a missionary does. We usually think of missionaries as people that go across seas, right? But today in Knoxville, we're going across the seas of ideas. I mean, ideally, we are not. we're, We're among foreigners, I can say it that way. I mean, the ideas that were here 40 years ago, 60 years ago, are not here today. I mean, we're in the Bible Belt, but not really. You know what I'm saying? So we are all missionaries right here, right now, today. Part of being a good missionary is being hospitable. It's a very, very big part. In fact, as we've been talking about from week to week to week, when it comes to hospitality, we typically think about food. And that is the easiest thing to go to whenever we talk about hospitality. It's usually food around a table, visitors, outsiders, friends, community, family, things like that. But there is a broader definition that has been very helpful for us the last few weeks. And that is the one that Tim Chester has, and that's the one he kind of coined, which says hospitality is, is all welcoming, it's making space, it's listening, it's paying attention, and it's providing for. Now, you can do that without food. So hospitality does shoot a little wider than just what's going on around a dinner table, even though that is the easiest way to pull it off, right? So, two weeks ago, I talked about a living room situation, right? I tried to get you to imagine yourself sitting in a living room where you had a Pharisee, a prostitute, and Jesus, and what was going down. I wanted you to hear the sounds and smell the smells and kind of see the sights. I'm going to kind of ask you to do the same thing today with this text, It's a very powerful text when you think about it. It's one that we've read a million times, but if you don't really look through the eyes of a missionary, if you don't really look at what Jesus is saying and doing, it's very easy to miss it and just go right on by it. So look in your Bible at Luke 14, and if you don't have your Bible, we will have it up on the screen. All right, there it is, Luke 14. It's this, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Okay, pause real quickly. By this point in the story of Luke, they, they meaning the Pharisees, had already decided that they were going to kill off Jesus. Right? This dinner was happening on the pretense that they were watching to gather evidence against him. They had already had their mind made up. We, we usually read this and we think that they're still kicking tires on him, trying to figure out what he's all about, they're trying to explore Jesus. They're not. They've already convicted him in their mind. That's what's going on here. 
One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Okay, pause again. That's a weird word. When I was in college, I thought that meant you were depressed. Um, that's not what it means. Dropsy today would be known as edema, swelling. Maybe you have heart damage, liver, kidney damage, your interstitial. Well, I mean, you just retain fluid, okay? You just look bloated and swollen, right? That's what's happening right here. That's hard to miss. I mean, you've, some of you have blown out ankles or knees, and it gets all big like a melon. Imagine a person like that, right? It's going to be hard to miss that. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, he was responding, of course they hadn't said anything yet, but he knows what they're thinking, so he's responding. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath, they will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things, which is the second time, right there in that short amount of time, the second time where they were stunned, they were silent, they were without comment, right? Jesus pretty much did exactly what they expected him to do, right? It was a trap. And he'd seen it before. I mean, they're boringly predictable. He knew what they were going to do. There was actually seven distinct times before this passage where Jesus did something radical on the Sabbath. This was the eighth he, he, he cast out a demon on the Sabbath. He had his disciples plucking and eating grain on the Sabbath. He healed a fever, healed a lame man, healed a man with a paralyzed hand, a crippled woman with a demon, healed a man that was born blind. He did all of this on a Sabbath. He knew this was coming. No way he didn't see this coming. He walks in a room on the Sabbath, of course, walks in a room with a bunch of lawyers and Pharisees and sees a big swollen dude. You know, what else is going to happen? He's going to heal him. And they knew it. And what Jesus shows us is that his hospitality knows no day off. It knows no day off. They could take a day off if they want. He's flat out going to heal somebody. And he did. He healed dropsy, edema, right there on the spot, the big swollen guy. What do you think that looked like? Think about it. I mean, the guy shrank. He shrank. I mean, when a blind person is healed, they, the eyes don't change shape or anything. It's just they can see, Right? I mean, someone that's lame on a mat, they might get some quads on them or something, but I mean, they're just walking. The legs were already there. This person shrank. Where did the fluid go? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's miraculous. A guy shrank right before their eyes. I can't imagine what that looked like, but that couldn't have gotten old. No way they were bored with that stuff, you know? I mean, I've seen some YouTube videos like a thousand times, and they're still not old to me. Still, I just click on them again because they're just hilarious, you know? There's no way they weren't thinking in their mind, boy, I hope he really heals this guy over here. I mean, I think that is what they were thinking. I think they were really wanting to see Jesus do something radical. And he didn't let them down. He did exactly what they thought he was going to do. You know, a common rule is, is whoever takes a swelling out of dudes gets to talk, right? That's the common rule. So he heals this guy. Boom. Guy shrinks. Now that I have everyone's attention, I got a little story to tell you. And you know everyone was listening. You know that. Fork's on the way to the mouth. <laughs> They're just sitting there. And he's going to tell a story. And he's got everybody's attention. You know he does. And he says this in verse 7. Now he had told a parable to those who were invited. He's not talking to the host right now. He's talking to everybody that the host had come. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, he said to them, 
When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. Boy, that's awkward, right? And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For every, and this is key statement right here, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what's going on here? What's going on? Places of honor is a weird phrase, because we don't really think like this today. We don't really act like this today. But back then, whenever they had these Sabbath meals or wedding feasts or big banquets, kind of like two weeks ago when we talked about this, they would sit around a table that wasn't very high, and they would lean on their left arm with their feet behind them, and they would just all share from the same table. The deal is, is maybe only three sides to the table were, were really taken by occupants. The fourth one was typically left open so that servants could get in and do refills and, I don't know, change out your plate, whatever they did back then, I don't know. So the thing is, is the person in the middle of the you was the host, the person of the greatest honor, right? The one in the very middle. The deal is, is people got their glory by how close you sat to the host, The closer you got to the middle of that whole thing, the more worth was ascribed to you. I don't know. It's just how they did it, right? So it became a little bit of musical chairs of self-promotion. It was really a fight to get as close to the host as possible. That's what he's talking to. He's talking to a people who are really there to extend their own glory. The real reason they're there is out of self-regard, self-concern. They want to be seen. They want to be seen big. They want to be seen well. It's all about their notoriety. Jesus walks in and shuts the room down by doing something very opposite, though, doesn't he? He's very hospitable. He's not thinking about himself. God is in the center of his concern. And it's interesting, because in the middle of their self-centeredness, he came in and he healed a man. That's really a picture of the gospel, because it's truly in the middle of our self-centeredness that he comes in and heals us. It's a little bit of an image of what he's done. And it's, it's interesting that in the middle of all of these religious experts, they've got nothing to say. They've got nothing to offer. They're just watching. I mean, how awkward must that have been? They didn't... Have any of y'all ever been in a place where you're with other Christians and you can't figure out a problem? There's something going on and you just can't quite figure it out. And you're trying and you're trying and you're racking your mind and then somebody eventually says, you know what, we should pray about that. We should have already started. We should pray about that. Every time that happens to me, I think, oh, I should have known that. I feel like such a donkey. I mean, that should have been the first thing that we did. Of course, the spiritual person says that, you know. We should have prayed already, of course. That must have been what it felt like. Because here they are, all thinking about how they can promote themselves. Jesus walks in and swells a swole, or he, he heals a swollen guy. And they're probably thinking, hmm. But they weren't able to really extend grace and hospitality because they hadn't received any. Right? Now, Jesus addresses them, and he talks about, and he describes God's mission. But what he uses is he uses their seating chart as an illustration, because it's totally brilliant. It's right there before his eyes. And he's not really, and this is some way I've heard it read, this is not really what's going on. He's not telling them how to get ahead. This is what we can think sometimes, that he's telling them how to get ahead. Oh, you guys have it all wrong. I mean, you're all about glory, but you're doing it wrong. Listen, this is the way to do it. You've got to play that self-humility card. I mean, if what you really want is honor, don't start off there. Man, that just sets you up for failure. What you want to do is start way over here. Because then you look twice as good if they ask you to go and sit up there. That's what it looks like. 
That's what it reads like. Like he's giving them some pointers, some self-help tips on how to promote themselves better and achieve higher glory. That's not what he's doing because they didn't need that information. They already knew how to do it. We don't need those pointers, do we? I don't. I pretty much know how to self-promote. I don't need any help with that. We don't really need help with that. But what he does is he shows them and he shows us what God's mission looks like. God's mission is that he came to seek, to save the lost, the broken, the people sitting on the wrong end of the table. Right? That's what he came to do. He came, Jesus came as a form of hospitality. He came as a form of mission. He came to rescue us, the broken, the humble, as we're going to read in a minute, the crippled, the blind, the poor, the beggars, the sleazy, the rebels. He is a better host. That's the picture that he's painting right here. He's describing to the invited people, this is what God's mission looks like. He's the one that does this as the better host. He accomplishes a a, a great ransom for us. He is a better host. He is a better king. He is a better hero. Now, they thought, they thought that, they must have thought, that God helps those who help himself. I know y'all have never heard that before. You know, I know it's a real unique term. It's never floated around. But the truth is, is God does help those who cannot help themselves. They thought that God helps those who help themselves. It turns out that God does help those who can't help themselves. It is the helpless that he comes to help. That's what we see. Jesus is showing them there. There's going to be a better banquet someday. A better banquet where people who experience shame today will be escorted to a place of honor sitting next to Jesus, honoring Jesus. People that once were at the wrong end of the table and saw that place were escorted to a better place by a better host. A better hero. A better king. It's a final table. So it's something real cool he's painting there, and we can miss that real easy. And then he continues on in verse 12. Now he's talking to the host. Now he's not talking to the invited people anymore. He's changing his his address. He said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, or else they'll also invite you in return, and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay, real careful. And just a side note right here. I might not have to say this. I'm going to do it anyway. Whenever it's talking about the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, understand that's talking about a spiritual posture, a spiritual state. It could be talking about physical poor, physical blind, and things like that. But we're not to be locked up in just being hospitable to those, to just people. I mean, you should be hospitable to engineers, people who are not blind. You know, you should be hospitable to people that have, um, I don't know, that are not lame, that are not crippled. Because if you don't do that, you take this literally to the point where it's physical and not spiritual state, then you end up with what's called a social gospel, right? Where we're only visiting God's hospitality and grace and love to the, to the darkest parts of town, and we neglect the ivory towers. And I know that sounds weird, but believe me, People on the street, they look drunk sometimes. That's why some of us have a hard time handing money out to them. Do you really know what a drunk looks like? They're not always homeless. <laughs> That's the thing. There's a lot of people that need the gospel. It's not just the poor, the crippled, the lame, or the blind. Or the lame or the blind. I said that backward. So that's probably a side 
note. And if you want to text, that's okay. But Jesus is basically looking at the host, and he's saying through his sentences, come on, this isn't real hospitality. That's not what's really going on. You know these guys are going to pay you back. You know eventually they're going to invite you to a banquet, and you're going to be one of the invited, and you're going to go to their hospitality in their living room, and you're going to chase that top seat just like they're doing it here. You know that's what it's all about. But the swollen guy that just walked out the room, he's probably not going to have you at his place. The swollen guy, he's probably not going to enhance your reputation. He's probably not going to do very much to make you look better. You can count on that. So what does this host do? This host did what we do. This host did what I can do real easily. He did a very hospitable act with himself in mind. He did mission with himself in mind. Self, self-promotion, um, self-regard, self-concern started to mingle in just on how missional that could be because it was an act of hospitality. He's handing out food in his own home, but it was anti-hospitality that was seeping and leaking out of his heart. That's what we see. And I could be both these people. I could be the guy climbing the ranks. That can for sure be me. I think it can be you too. Show me a hierarchy and a pyramid, and I guarantee I can get in and try to work my way to the top. That's just our human nature. That's in all of us, right? But I can also be this guy, the one faking hospitality. That could definitely be me as well. That's the one I really want to talk to today. You know, how does, and this is my question to you, and it's been the question I've been wrestling with for weeks. How does self-concern, how does self-regard and self-concern tint or shade me being on God's mission, me being hospitable? How does it factor in? Is, is, my hospitality, is my hospitality, is it lame? Is my mission lame because of it? I mean, when can my hospitality and my mission be much more about me than even about God? That's a tough question, isn't it? But it's important for us as a church today. It's important for legacy. Because here we have six missions to the city right now. Six. We probably need a seventh almost immediately. But right now we have six missions to the city. Six different parts of Knoxville that we're trying to reach out to. And we're just now at a place. And we've had these things going, but it's taken a long time to kind of get to know each other, kind of start to gel. And we started messing around with some different ways of doing mission. And we've played around, and we like a little bit of this, and we like a little bit of that. And I can, you can start to see the car straightening out a little bit. You can start to see some of the kinks working out, right? And so as the mission starts to get more regular, and we start to refine it and find the sweet spot on the bat for all of our missional communities, as that starts to happen, we're going to be tempted to foul out here. We're going to be tempted to not do mission well as we reach the city. We're going to be tempted to not do hospitality well when we reach a city. The more you are on God's mission, the more you will be tempted to mix yourself into it, to taint it, to shade it, out of concern and regard for yourself. It's very, very easy to do. And we're going to talk about a few of these areas. Just a couple. And you might see yourself in one. You might. I see myself in all of them. <laughs> As I'm writing this, I thought, man, this is too easy to write. I don't like the fact that this is really easy to write right now. But this is just easy. I think sometimes we can be tempted to make mission and hospitality all about our own identity and reputation. It becomes about us and how we look really, really fast. Kind of like the host. And we could usually do this before Jesus or others, but I mean, think about it. Sometimes we want to look better before Jesus. Jesus, I hope you like me more, love me more, show me more favor, and bless me because I'm making you more famous. 
I'm doing things for you. Hopefully now you will do something for me. And it becomes about us real fast. I'm on mission, Lord. I'm hospitable because I want you to show me more and more favor. Maybe some of you deal with that. Maybe some of that is you. Your identity becomes constructed out of what you can do for God, right? Of course, it has a nasty flip side to it, doesn't it? The flip side is, is I feel like God might be holding back some favor, holding back some blessing because I'm not a good missionary. I'm not doing a good job connecting with the culture. Therefore, God might not love me as much. Maybe he loves Luke more because he's a pastor and he's on God's mission. Maybe he loves Jeff more or Teg more. Maybe he loves some of us more because we are doing hospitable acts. But for me... So it's got a nasty flip side. That's why some of you kind of shrink. As soon as I start to say, and listen, I know how it is. I I promise I know how it is. But whenever I say, hey, today we're going to talk about... Being a missionary, you know, I know inside some of you are like, oh, you know, here it comes. I'm going to take my licks. I know that's something I'm supposed to be and I'm not, you know, bring it on. Let me have it. Let's get it out of the way. I mean, why are you like that? Think about it. Why does it happen inside of you? Why? I mean, grace comes to us as a ransom people, totally despite what we do. Think about that. That's what grace is. It doesn't come because of our actions. It comes despite our actions. It comes in the face of your best efforts. It doesn't come built on the back of your best efforts. Think about that. Think about how beautiful grace is. I mean, the reason that you want God to love you more and give you more favor and approve you more is because there is a part of God's gospel you're having a hard time getting your arms around, and that's the fact that you are totally approved already through Christ because of what Christ did, not because of what you do. It's not on the backs of your efforts that grace is visited upon you. It is on the back of Jesus' effort that grace has been visited upon you. And some of us, it just seems a little too easy. That can't be it, Luke. That's just too easy. That's too simplified. So what we do is we put a big plus sign after our life. We start adding things to Jesus. Adding behavior. Adding mission. Adding attendance. Adding memorization. Adding, I've read this book. Adding, I've, we just start adding things because we just really want God to like us more. We want him to love us more. That's a very real thing. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. But it's not just with Jesus. We want each other to look at each other well. We, we want to be esteemed well before people by being a good missionary, by being very hospitable. It's something that we struggle with with each other. It's the Christianized version of trying to vie for the, the seat closest to the host. That's something that we can do. Maybe some of you deal with that. And that's why it's difficult for you to do something on God's mission. Maybe whether it's giving some money to somebody that lives on the street or putting shoes on somebody or meeting with someone at a bar and having a beer and, and just listening to him spill his life. It's hard for you to do those things without making it broadcast before everybody. You've got to let everybody know. Because a missional act done in secrecy doesn't give you any effort or esteem, rather. It doesn't elevate your profile, Right? So we have to tell everybody about everything. And it's not so that we can celebrate what God has done. It's so that people can celebrate what we have done. That's a very real thing, and it's very subtle. It sneaks right on in, right? And that's why some of you are very uncomfortable being around people that seemingly bear a lot of fruit, a lot of missional fruit. It seems like there's a long train of people behind them that they have single-handedly changed their lives, and you're uncomfortable being around them. 
Or maybe you exaggerate some of the things that you've done. Some of you do that. You start adding numbers, right? Adding numbers, bringing depth to the story, changing a few facts, because it changes the way people see us. Again, it's very real. I know that for many people, this is a big, big point of insecurity. And just like I just mentioned with the gospel, another aspect of the gospel that we fail at understanding and getting our arms around is the fact that we're totally approved, we're totally loved. Again, if I understand, and I don't, I don't, but I want to, if I totally understand how approved and favored I already am, then what you think about me becomes very insignificant, and I stop trying to stack what you believe on top of what God believes, like cordwood, which is what we typically do. Sure, I know God loves me. I know he favors me. I know all that stuff, but I really, really care about what everyone else thinks about me too. So I'm going to start doing whatever it takes to get them to see me a certain way. That's because we don't really believe that the gospel is that good. It's not that good. It's good, but it's not that good, right? Listen, another thing that I think we can do sometimes that I can do is I can make mission and hospitality very subservient to my comfort. This is a big foul ball for me. I really like being comfortable. And sometimes when I put comfort before mission, it causes me to disconnect from the city. And that's what it will do. It will cause us to disconnect from people, right? And, you know, maybe not too much. I mean, maybe we'll do missional things just so we can kind of check the missional box and not feel guilty whenever we sit and listen to someone else preach about it, but we'll never really let it swallow our life whole. We'll never let it really invade the crevices of our schedule at all points in time. That's a lot more difficult. You know, that's why it is easier, and watch how easy this is for some of you that are in missional communities. The majority of you are, are in a missional community. Watch how easy it is to say, my community is on mission, therefore I am on mission. That might not be a true statement. Your missional community might be on mission, sure enough, but during the week, you are not being hospitable to the people around you, the cubicle next to you, the car in front of you, the neighbor next to you. What we do as communities does not nullify what we do as individuals. What we do as a community comprises what we do as individuals. It makes up what we do as individuals. I mean, 12 adults going and feeding the homeless is a really missional, hospitable act. It really is. But 12 adults that are living on God's mission all week and do that, now that is a closer picture of what we're talking about. But it's very easy to treat the city as a project and not real people. And whenever we do that, then mission starts to look like a time slot. Wednesday nights, Friday nights. And whenever it becomes a project, we start grouping people together and say, you're just a group, it separates us from the people. I'm going to explain a little bit. Projects are easier to retreat from than people are. Projects don't cry their eyes out. People do. Projects don't lie to you. But guess what? People you reach out to, they're going to do that. They're going to lie to you. They're going to mishandle you and abuse you. It's going to happen. But it's easier to say, I'm reaching the culture, when really what you're doing is you're reaching a segment of the populace. You're reaching a group, a niche, right? This is an easy, easy trap. This is what Tim Chester says. It's very helpful for me. He says, we must never let engaging the culture eclipse engaging with people. If you want to understand a person's worldview, don't read a book. Talk to them. Hang out with them. Eat with them. But it's easy to lose the leaves for the trees, isn't it? It's easy to think about demographics and people groups and miss the people that actually make it up. Church planners are the worst at this, man. 
Church planners are the worst, which I am one. Pastors are the second worst, which I am one. (laughs) Missional community leaders, right? I'm all of them. It's easy to do this. It's easy. Because the deal is, is culture doesn't inconvenience me. But the people that make it up do. Knoxville doesn't really rob my time very much. But the people that live in it do. Now, my caution to us, my caution to myself is that as we continue on mission as communities spread out throughout the city, as we do that, we, we avoid the danger, we avoid the pothole of reaching demographics, which is good, it's a start, I suppose. But doing that overreaching people, that's so, so, so important. Because listen, all single moms are not single for the same reason. <laughs> it's a demographic, but they all have different stories. All people who are gay, they don't all feel the same way about their lifestyle. They don't. Okay? All the homeless people you bump into, believe it or not, they don't all want to live in a home. They don't. You're never going to know that as if you look at the city if it's a demographic. You have to start to contact the people and get to know them. So, and I'll tell you, now this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's one I at least prepared for, okay? So I'm not going to get crazy with it. But whenever we do talk about the poor, I do want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the ones who are socially, um, economically disadvantaged. Uh, compared to the people in this room, they'd be a few strata down, okay? I'm going to talk about that just for a minute because sometimes we can actually connect with the person. We, maybe we do take that step and we start connecting to the person and we might actually, um, I don't know, provide for them. We might listen, but we're never going to welcome them into our life and make space. We're not actually going to see them as an equal, right? There's this brilliant quote um, by Christine Pohl. She wrote a book called Making Room. It's a book on hospitality. She says this, and I'm going to explain it, but this is what she says. Often, we maintain significant boundaries when offering help to those in need. Many churches prepare and serve meals to the hungry neighbors, but only a few church members find it easy to sit and eat with those who need the meal. That's true. That's true. You can see it by the preponderance of ministries that are just dumping finances into feeding people, but you don't see a lot of people sitting down with the people eating, right? We are familiar with the roles as helpers, but are less certain of being equals eating together. It's also true. Many of us struggle with being with those in need or helping roles give definition to that relationship, but they also keep it decidedly hierarchical. What she's saying is this. It's easier for us to be in a place where we're giving to the, to the disenfranchised, the marginalized. We'll say that. It's easy for us to give because it defines the relationship. There's peace. Hey, this is how it works. I give, you take, next in line. Here's the soup, hold out your cup, next. Here are the boots, here's the sleeping bag, next. It doesn't allow us to see them as equals as much. And so what it does is it kind of keeps us a little bit of arm's length away. That's what it does. And that's true. I've been in ministries that have both fed and sat down and, and eaten with the people, homeless ministries, and I've found how my heart is a lot more comfortable serving these people than it is sitting down and finding out what their full name is. Most homeless people don't know what their friend's full name is. Some homeless people in Knoxville will live and die this year, and no one will even know their full name. You know, It's true. We don't do a very good job of that because it's hard. It's hard for us to see them as an equal, an equal person, becoming friends, leveling the playing field, welcoming them into our lives, making space. You know, I'll never forget this time, and I'm telling this as a shame to myself, not as a... (laughs) Not, not so I'm elevating and self-promoting myself, because I would leave a lot of these details out, I'm sure. But when I was in Tampa, I remember one day I got in the mail a book I'd been waiting for on how to be a good 
missionary, right? And I was so excited about this book. Man, I couldn't wait to crack it open at lunch that day, so I made sure I didn't schedule any appointments that day. I wanted to get in and spend like a two-hour lunch. So I went to Taco Bell, right? Because <laughs> I had to have their double-decker tacos. You ever had those? They're good. I'd eat one right now, right in front of all of you. So if I have, it makes me want one. So I went there, and I remember getting out of my car, walking with this book in hand to Taco Bell, and there's a homeless guy panhandling right in front of the door. And I thought, oh, man, I'm going to have to do that thing that, where you say, hey, I don't have cash. I'm sorry, man, which is what we usually say. So I'm going I'm to have to lie to this guy, you know. And, then I, and so I'm walking from my car to the front door, and I just know that I know God told me, no, you're going to buy his lunch, and you're going to sit down and eat with him. And I thought, no, just let me buy his lunch. Just let me give him some cash. Now I do want to give him some cash, Lord. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll give him a 20, he'll get more tacos than me, I'll read my book, and I'll leave. And I felt ashamed of trying to learn cognitively about how to be a missionary, and I'm not really willing to sit down from one cripple talking to another. Yeah. So I did. We sat down and we ate, and he cried all the way through that meal, and he stunk, and he cussed, and he was drunk. You know? And everyone's looking, and they're staring, of course. You know, I know Taco Bell never sees people like that, but... That day, they're all looking, and I'm watching this guy just weep through his meal. I learned more about being a missionary, that, and I read that book cover to cover, and it was a good book, and I didn't learn as much. God broke my heart. He ripped my heart out because I was trying to just learn about this guy's story. We have to be careful that we don't frame our gospel with a condescending position. I'm better than you. I've got more money because I've made better decisions, and it's your fault that you are the way you are. So take the soup and sit down, and by the way, get saved. Not the best way to frame the gospel. But when we sit down as equals and we talk, and believe it or not, we are all equals, okay? As you do that, watch how ministry takes off. The thing that this guy cried about wasn't that he ate. People were eventually going to give him money. It's that somebody sat down with him, right? And I didn't do a good job of exploring his life. I didn't. You know, I was kind of new to that. But that's just what it looked like. Me, one who was blind, talking to someone who was blind. Me, someone who really experienced deep need in my life, talking to someone who was experiencing deep need right in the moment. I think sometimes also, we could be tempted to make mission and hospitality subservient to our own power and authority. I'm going to explain. Our own power and our own glory. Feel free to text your questions in. This can also be especially tough when reaching out to people that are in strata below us economically, socially, mentally, right? This can also be tough because sometimes we can catch ourselves saying, I will be hospitable on my own terms, on my terms. I demand to be the correct one in this. I know what they need better than they know what they need. I know they asked for this, but I'm not going to give it to them. I'm going to give them what I want to give them. I am in control of this, right? Sometimes our heart says that. Luke, my heart doesn't say that. How about this statement? I'm not going to give that person money. They're just going to spend it on beer. Right? How do you know? Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. And listen, I know why we say that. I know why we say that. Because in our mind, we're thinking, why would I finance and subsidize this person's addiction his depravity, her depravity, why would I be the one to finance their drunkenness? That's no love to them, Luke. You're right, it's not. 
But if that was our real concern, then we would take them and get some meal with them. We would sit down and eat with them if that was our real concern. But it's not our real concern. Our real concern is, is I don't want to be made the fool of. I don't want that to happen to me. This is my money. I'm stewarding it out. I mean, they're just going to mishandle it. They're just going to abuse it. And I know that. I'm not going to let them take advantage of me like that. So I'm going to keep walking because they're just going to spend it on beer. I know that, listen, the thing is, is you're right. They might mishandle it. If you're going to do true missions, true missions, to be a true, true missionary, you will be mishandled. (laughs) And often, you'll be abused. Your treasure will not be handled the way that you want it to be handled. Welcome to the club. That's what we did to Jesus. I'm glad his attitude wasn't that way because when he came, he came knowing that we were going to mishandle and abuse him. Heck, we're going to murder him. We're going to put him up on a cross. That's the gospel, folks. And it was love that he did that. I am the drunk on the corner asking for money that I am going to go get drunk on. And he still gave his life up for me. That blows my mind. That's the depth of grace, though, isn't it? That's true hospitality. Now listen. I I am tempted to be about myself and about mission all the time, especially when it comes to my own glory and power, my comfort, my identity, all these things that I mentioned, I'm tempted to do that real easily. And whenever I do do that, and I do it often, I mess up and hit those foul balls often, whenever I do, I just don't look like Jesus very much. I don't. I'm not imaging him very well. I mean, the gospel story for us in this passage is this, folks. We were brought from a place of shame to a place of honor because of the work of our own hospitable host. Hear that in the passage. And now we get to be hospitable missionaries just like he was. Now we get to do what he showed us. We don't have to do. We get to do what he showed us. We get to invite people who will never invite you back. You get to give cash to people that will never even acknowledge you. You get to love people that will actually badmouth you. You will get to love and reach out to people that are going to forget your name in two weeks. We get to do this. We get to do this. That's what Jesus did for us. And he sends us just like he was sent. Make no mistake. This is what it says in John 20. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now listen, he was sent to reach blind cripples at the wrong end of the table. Fact. And that's what we get to do. We get to reach the blind cripples. We are all blind cripples, by the way. You don't have to be living over on Gill to be a blind cripple. Now, How do we, okay, as a band of missionaries, lead people to see their place at the table and to see who their host is? How do we get to do that? How do we do that as a people, a collective people? You know, I mean, sure, we connect with people that aren't going to pay us back. Sure, we're going to connect with people that will never invite us. I mean, sure, all of that is true, right? But first, I will tell you, I think proper, we need to carry some things to the cross, that keep us from being this way. We need to really look at why it is that we struggle with being a missionary. Where is the price tag the deepest for you on this? I mean, I have to do this. I I do this a lot, and I don't do it enough. I mean, think about comfort. I don't want to touch mess. I don't want to befriend it. It takes time. It takes resource. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just fake it. I'm going to sign up for whatever the church says we're going to (laughs) do. You know, whatever little project, but at least it will be a retreat because it's just a project. I don't even have to really get to know anybody, right? 
So I'm going to continue on with my rhythms, and they're not going to be interrupted with. That's typically where I find myself drifting towards. That's really my factory default. Now, what I need to know and what you need to know if this is something you struggle with is that God and His gospel is good enough. Did you know you could be so satisfied with God's good news over you? You could be so satisfied with the passionate work that He did with you that you don't have to escape His mission. It's too beautiful. You're drawn to it. You don't want to escape it. You know, you can be so satisfied by God and His gospel that the mess that people are walking around in, it doesn't gross you out as much as it draws you towards. You know, my pastor, and I bring him up a lot, um, from Tampa, I remember being around him and a few other guys um, in downtown Tampa. We were around a bunch of homeless I think this is how it went. We were around a bunch of homeless, and man, it smelled bad. I mean, it's, it was the smell of alcohol for sure, a lot of pot, um, urine. And now, urine smells different whenever it's in your clothes and you keep sleeping in it, right? So all of this mixed together was just, I mean, it hit us like a, like a ton of bricks. We walked in. I was like, whoa. And I remember Pastor Jay looking at us as men, and he said, guys, you smell that? That's the smell that Jesus was drawn to. He embraced this smell, not because of what it represents in mankind, but because he knew someday he was going to reverse all that. All that was broken and sad that was creating that in people. He was going to undo it all, and he loved it, and he looked for it, and he surrounded it. Man, that messed me up when he said that. It changed the way I hugged people. It it changed the way I embraced that, that whole part of the community, that whole part of the city. But it's true. It's true. I want to put a passage up on the screen It's very helpful for us. Put Philippians 2, can you, Christian, up there? Verses 3 through 8. Okay, you've read this a gazillion times, but try to read it through the eyes of a missionary trying to be hospitable. And it says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, As we read this, look at how much it's emptying you. It's emptying you from your own concern and regard for yourself. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus did. This is what we are to image. Now, if some of you, like me, struggle with the comfort thing, and comfort is where it all starts to lock down on you, you do like the idea of being on God's mission, you love the idea of opening up your life, making space and welcoming people into your life, you love the idea, but you find it encroaching on the things that you hold dear as far as comfort, you need to get that scripture in your gut. You need to memorize it. And you need to just preach it to yourself. You need to preach the gospel to yourself that God really is that good. And his mission and what he came to love and to seek and to save is actually so beautiful. We don't have to escape it. There's no need for it. We get to do this very beautiful thing that he imaged for us. He showed us. Maybe for some of us it's identity. This is me too. I need mission to define me. I feel good about myself when I do it well. I feel like a failure when I fail at it. But I do want God to love me more and bless me more, and I want people to like me more. When I fail on a bad day, that's the way it is, right? Again, God and his good news for us 
God in his gospel is good enough for our identity as well. And we kind of already touched on that a little bit. That we can be so satisfied with how he sees us that the views of others stacked on us, it's just inconsequential. It just doesn't matter very much, right? So we have to carry this to the cross as well. Because some of you are only doing ministry or mission or hospitality because you want God to like you more. Some of you, that's the only reason you're doing it. You need to rest in the fact that he can't like you anymore. You can't be approved any more than you are right now. Christian, you can't be. You need to feel comfortable with that because you know what? If you're meeting with someone or welcoming them into your life and you're doing it so that you can get a better goal done, which is God loving you, the person you're being hospitable to can tell. But whenever you're doing it because you get to and you actually love them and it's an image of what Jesus has done, then they feel the depth of your hospitality. It makes a big difference. It truly does. Put this passage up. This is one that you people need to memorize if this is what you struggle with. And I am one of them. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Sorry, bro. I just told you to stick a passage up there. For while we were still weak, hear that, crippled, poor, messed up, sleazy, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You need to hear it, that you can't be any more proved than you are right now. It does affect everything. And what's your proof? Just go and look what Jesus did. Go to Romans. Memorize it. Romans 5 is powerful for that. You didn't do anything to impress him. You were a poor, blind beggar. You didn't lift your own spiritual weight. He did it for you. He invaded your space and rescued you. So what can you do now to make him like you anymore? It changes the way you do mission. What about power? I need the right to be in control. People are beneath me. I'm above them, so therefore I'm the expert, and they need to listen to me and receive hospitality the way I want to serve it up. Right? That's in me, too. That's in all of us, too, to some degree. Right? To some degree. The good news for us is God is glorious, and he is glorious enough. That's the part of the gospel we need to hear there, that he is really glorious. He is actually so glorious, and we can be so intoxicated by his level of glory that we don't have to siphon any off for ourselves, which is truly what we try to do. We want to be seen glorious and right. I'm doing this this way because I am right. I'm the one to be glorified. I'm the one on the pinnacle. I'm the one that stands up above all else. You're doing that because you're not satisfied with God being big enough, so you've got to be a little bit bigger too, right? You're okay with God being big, but you need to be kind of big as well. And so what we do is we try to share and try to cut some of that glory off for ourselves. What we have now, we only have by his grace. You know what separates you from the people on the street or from the drunk in the ivory tower or from the the family that looks successful on the outside, but they're not? They're dead men's bones inside. You know what the difference between you and that is? Is God's grace. That's the difference. Listen, I've had more conversations. We'll just use homeless as an example again because it's easy for us. I've had more conversations with homeless people in the last 10 years. I, 
I've lost count well over a few hundred. I've had so many conversations. Do you have any few of them? Well, there's a lot that are there because they've just made some really bad decisions. And you just kind of look them in the face and say, bro, that was a bad move. It's a bad decision. You need to pick up the phone and make that work because you're living on the street, you know. But do you know there's some that they didn't make any bad decisions? Not that I could tell. The more you get to know them, they're on the street for a totally different reason. I met one guy in Tampa, and I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. He, um, he and I, I went and checked up on it later and found out that he was telling the truth, okay? And I've been lied to by enough people, I can kind of tell a little bit. But he, he said, Luke, I used to own or be a part owner. I was a, one of two owners of a CPA business in Tampa that did very, very well. But then his daughter died in his arms of unexplained causes. He knew that she was dying, he held her, and it just it wrecked him. It wrecked him so much, it broke his marriage in half. And he lost all will to even work. Well, then he lost the house. So now he's sleeping in his car. But that's only going to last so long because you have to have cash. And so it only took a few short years, and now he's living on the street. And I'm handing him Burger King. You know? Did he make some bad decisions? Probably. Probably made some bad decisions by not going to work, by not fixing the marriage. But would I have done any different? I don't know, man. I don't know. I might be that guy. I might be that guy if I lost one of my girls like that, if I lost my son like that might mess me up. The only reason I have what I have is by God's grace. He is the glorious one. So what I need to know about the gospel is I need to quit trying to steal that glory from him. I'm not right all the time. So the passage I like about this, and this is what, if you're like me in this area, you might want to look at this as well. 1 Corinthians 2, you might want to jot this down. This is helpful. It's helpful to memorize. This is Paul talking to a young church. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, because that would draw attention to him, right? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. These things are not going to draw attention to him. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I have to hear that. Or else, every person that becomes a Christian in this church becomes a person that I led to the cross. Well, whatever. I think God most likely is the one that did the spiritual lifting. You know what I'm saying? If I don't hear this, and it does become a power trip on me, then I start taking credit for all kinds of weird stuff. Paul is showing us that God's glory is big enough. His glory doesn't have to be anything. He's a brilliant man who's memorized the first five books of the Bible. And he's like, I resolved to know nothing except the the cross and Christ crucified. That's all I'm saying I know. He could have preached the paint off the walls. And there were times where he chose not to. That blows my mind, you know. So I'm finishing. I don't have an airstrip. That was it. So the plane is plummeting to the ground now. Um, I've got nowhere to land this. So I tell you what, just go ahead and stand with me, and I'm going to pray for you.